0: It's that, that time of the year again when we have an opportunity to uh, not only raise awareness but raise funds for a very important issue that all of us are facing uh, in our world and here locally in our own community. And uh, we're excited uh, because uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we're going to be able to share some really, really good news with you concerning uh, the R2R front and some exciting things that we've been praying about, talking about and sharing, casting the vision with you. Uh, that uh, I'm not at liberty to to share yet, but it's coming and I'm so thrilled that this church has played a major role and a major part in some significant things that are going to be happening in our own local community regarding this issue. So show up, you can run, you can walk, you can volunteer. Once again, it's going to be a great event, a great opportunity for us to continue to make an impact. And not only do we make an impact when Corporations, companies come together, individuals come together, volunteers come together, but even in the area of politics, you know, we need people that love Jesus and have a fear of God and understand kingdom principles running for office, so anytime we have members in good standing here at Trinity that are wanting to step up to the plate and run for public office, we need them to know that we love and are praying for them, and so uh, we have such a one, Gary Bourne, Gary, please stand up, he's running for Lubbock County Judge. And right around the corner we have an election and so we just need to make sure that all of you as Christians are going out there and of course voting your conscience and uh, we need to know when there are good people who are part of our church that are out there wanting to make a difference and so early voting is going to start May 14th through the 18th and then election day is May 22nd. Please make sure you know that you're letting your voice be heard. Well, how many of you appreciated Rob Brendel, those of you that were with us last weekend, uh, Denver United pastor, didn't he bring a good message last weekend? I I so appreciated his his ministry to our congregation. Uh, But we're back in the book of Acts, and we're gonna finish up the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, and I've entitled this chapter, Old Ways Don't Open Up New Doors. Uh, The old ways of of evangelism uh, were coming to an end, and a new door of evangelism is gonna be opened up. And in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, One Barnabas and Saul of Tarsus were sent out of the church of Antioch, commissioned to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, At a certain point, uh, as they left the church of Antioch and they began to go to city to city, beginning to preach the gospel first in the synagogues, something happened and Paul became, Saul became Paul, his name was changed from Saul to Paul, and he also became the leader of this team. It was now Paul and his party or Paul and his company so now Paul becomes the central figure throughout, really, the book of Acts and the remainder of the New Testament, and we're going to look at in this uh, first uh, in the in in here in Acts 13 the very first sermon that the apostle Paul ever preached. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you first of all about the beauty of first things. Now we all remember first things, the first time. Something happened in our life. How many of you remember your first job, you know? Some of you are like, I'm waiting for that first job. Amen. How many of you remember your first car? Remember the first time you kissed your spouse? Uh, Remember the first date you guys went on? Uh, Do you remember what you all ordered, you know? The first time you shared a meal together? Uh, We all remember first things. Remember the first time your spouse told you that they loved you and they really meant it? Um, First times for everything. I remember the first time I preached. Let's just say that it has gotten better, okay? Uh, The beauty of first things. And so this is Paul's first recorded sermon. And we're going to begin in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. So Paul stood, remember he's in a synagogue full of Jews and Gentiles. He stood, he lifted up his hand to quiet them and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then, with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them. (laughs) Notice that. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Let's stop there and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's message. We thank you for... The worship, the ministry, the dedication of children, thank you that you're having your way in this service. And you'll continue to have your way now through the preaching of the message of Christ. Let it find a home in our hearts. Let it bring hope, life, peace, grace, and encouragement, and training in righteousness. I pray and ask this in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I want to welcome those that are watching online. Thank you for being a part of our service today. Paul is preaching to his fellow countrymen and to the Gentiles that were in that particular synagogue that day. And he's going to give them a history lesson because history is important. Understanding your roots, understanding your faith and where it originated and who it originated with. And Paul is in this message going to remind all the Jewish people there that there's something special about our ancestry, about our forefathers. And he gives them a a history lesson, and it's an accurate history lesson, and he's basically saying, we haven't been the best followers of God. We haven't been the best servants of God. We've given him a lot of heartache. He had to put up with a lot of things, especially during those 40 years that we wandered in the wilderness. Can you imagine the things that God has had to put up with concerning his people and concerning even us today, the things he has to put up with? What does it mean to put up with something? Well, it, it means to accept or continue to accept some unpleasant person or unpleasant situation or experience that uh, you're having to put up with that person or persons. Some of you have to put up with a cranky boss, or some of you might have to put up with a coworker that just doesn't respect boundaries or personal space. Sometimes a wife has to put up with a messy husband. Of course, not in this service, but in the next one. And uh, then there are husbands that have to put up with a quarrelsome wife. You know, Solomon in the book of Proverbs is kind of funny. He, he says it's better to live in an attic, you know, than to, than to put up with a nagging wife. They did some research, some psychologists some time ago did some research as to why a wife nags her husband. And they discovered that self-consciously she desires to break down his ego. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I know like what one woman said. She said, thank God for nagging wives. They do their work until God can take over. So there's a real calling to be a nagging wife, I guess. Well, there's nothing that we have to put up with that can even come close to what God had to put up with, the children of Israel, for those 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. And not just those 40 years, but prior to those 40 years when they were in bondage for 400-plus years in Egypt, and then when they finally did get to the Promised Land. So Paul is reminding them of God's diligence and God's commitment and God's faithfulness to all of us. So let's continue in verse 19 now. Then he destroyed seven nations in Cana and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people begged for a king. And God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, this is astounding, a man, a singular mere mortal man. They say that there's never been a man that God has been more endeared to, that's ever lived, than David." A man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Wow, what a compliment. What a compliment that God paid to this one mere mortal man, David. That God said, there's something special about this man. He's a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. You know, we talked a moment ago about the beauty of first things. How about the beauty of faith? That when God looked at this man, David, he saw something in him. He saw something spectacular. God saw the beauty inside of David. You know, there's a lesson there for all of us because when God looks at you and God looks at me, he sees the good in you, he sees the beauty. That's in all of us. I know sometimes we don't see the beauty in ourselves. Which prevents us from seeing the beauty in somebody else? Which prevents us from seeing the beauty that's in this world that God created? I know there's a lot of ugliness in our world. I know at times there's a lot of ugliness in you. And there's a lot of ugliness in me. And if we look hard enough, well actually we don't even need to look very hard. Because ugly's everywhere it seems. It takes real faith to look and find and see and discover the beauty and when God looked at David's life God knew that this man was a flawed man but yet he saw something in him something that was beautiful because you know when God looks at a man and this is what Samuel tells us in first Samuel 16 when he went to the house of Jesse to to anoint one of his sons to be the next king Samuel was shocked that it wasn't the oldest brothers of Jesse the oldest sons of Jesse which were the oldest older brothers of David who was going to be the next king because they were tall dark and handsome and God rebukes Samuel and says, I do not look at man as you look at man. Man looks at the outward, but I look at the heart. You see, today in this service, God sees you, not what you look like on the outside. God sees your heart, what you look like on the inside. And what makes a person beautiful and what makes a person attractive, it's not the standards of beauty that this world tries to shove down our throats every 24-7. It's not what's on the outside. It doesn't mean that what's on the outside isn't important. Don't get me wrong. But more importantly, it's what's on the inside. Peter said it's the hidden man of the heart. Peter talked about an inward beauty inside of a woman or inside of a man. That's what really makes you attractive. Not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. So when God looked at David, God saw that which was beautiful. I know it's much easier in life to detect the defects so much easier to go through life and to see the flaws in your life, because they're there, or the flaws in your spouse, because they're there. And it seems the longer you're married, if you're not careful, the more pronounced those flaws can become. It's eerily quiet in here this morning, and I don't know why. (laughs) I must be preaching really good or stepping on some toes, amen. so easy to look at your marriage and only see the flaws, and look at somebody else's marriage and say, oh, if I only had that marriage easy to detect the defects it takes faith to see that which is beautiful it takes faith to look at yourself and see the beautiful things that God has done and God has yet to do in your life it takes faith to look at somebody else and see the beauty in them to look at others who may be different than you and even see the beauty in them it takes faith to look at a church like this and not detect the defects but to see that which is beautiful to see the expression of Christ in this church, in other churches that lift up the name of Jesus. To even look at your company, your business, who you work with, your friends, your associates, and not detect the defects, but it takes faith to see that which is beautiful. And the beauty's there. And listen, in this broken, fallen world of ours, we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for beauty. Something doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to be beautiful. Matter of fact, archaeologists will sometimes dig up some ancient. civilization and they'll find remains from that ancient civilization some marble statue some carving and maybe the statue has a broken arm but that statue is of great value that statue becomes something beautiful not because it's flawless not because it's perfect with all the scratches and the stains that have been worn through the centuries it still becomes something that is priceless and even though there may be some broken areas in your life there may be some scars There may be some marred areas in your life. God sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ and he sees the beauty of faith and he sees a heart after him, a heart that wants to serve him. And that's what makes you, like David, so attractive to God. You see, David was beautiful because look at 1 Kings chapter 15 verse 5. For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and had obeyed. The Lord's commands throughout his life except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. What made David so beautiful? I'm talking about the beauty of faith. It's because he did what was pleasing to the, uh, in, in the sight of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 it says this, for without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone that comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. David diligently sought the Lord all the days of his life, and David was pleasing to God because David was a man of faith. That's the only way you can please God, is to be a person of faith, of trust, of reliance upon God. David was that way, and David obeyed the Lord. In every area of his life, he would inquire of the Lord, should I do this, should I not do this? He was always open to the wisdom of God and the leading of God in his life, With one exception. And it says, accept. Accept. That stood out to me as I was studying, praying, meditating on this message. He did everything that pleased God (coughs) with one exception. You know, in all of our lives, we have some exceptions. You love God and I love God, except there are times when we make a wrong choice, a wrong decision. When we're battling our own demons. But God doesn't give up on us like he didn't give up on David. Sometimes we think, well, in order for me to really be a strong witness and testimony for Christ, I need to have a life without exceptions. Some of you might be thinking, you know, Pastor Carl, my witness and my testimony for Christ would be really great in my community and amongst my family, except I had that unfortunate divorce in my past. But that doesn't disqualify you. God doesn't look at that moment in your life and say, okay, now I can't use you for the rest of your life. Some might say, you know, Pastor Carl, my witness and my testimony, my faith for Christ would be something that God could really use except that time that I was arrested. We all have those exceptions in our life. We have to accept the exceptions in our life. You have to accept the accepts of life. A-C-C-E-P-T and the E X C E P T. You have to accept the fact that there are going to be Exceptional moments in your life that Looking back you wish you could do differently Looking back you're not proud of Looking back there's some shame that's associated With that but if you take it to the cross And you ask for God's forgiveness And you truly repent the blood of Christ Cleanses you and God takes that sin and he Casts it in the sea of forgetfulness never to be Remembered again Everyone in here those watching online Right now those that will be in our next service And all of our services this weekend There are the exceptions of life And sometimes we think, well, except for that divorce, or except for that arrest, or except for that bankruptcy, or except for that particular failure in my life. The good news is that God loved David, and God celebrated David, and God saw the beauty in David in spite of his flaws, and in spite of his imperfections, and God sees the goodness in you, and God sees the beauty in you, in spite of the exceptional moments in your life. see, even though David committed that grievous sin against God and against Uriah in the matter of Bathsheba, he truly repented. He truly hated his sin, and God was able to take that, and God was able to restore him. Now listen, because God's a just God, he couldn't just look the other way. God in his holiness and God in his justice had to confront his servant David, had to correct his servant David. And even though God forgave David of his sins, God did not negate or cancel the consequences of his sins. As Paul said in Galatians 6:9, God is not mocked. whatsoever a man sows, that he'll have to reap. And David had to reap the seeds that he sowed. But God forgave him, and God restored him. And here's what we know about David. David's sin, you could say, was accidental. It wasn't so much premeditated as it was given in to the moment, the passion of that moment. And that's what separated David and David's sin because it wasn't a part of his true nature. It was a one and done type deal. Unlike Balaam's deceitfulness in the Bible or Judas's betrayal in the Bible or or even Ahab's wickedness in the Bible. And what we understand from this is that God seems to admire the man or the woman who is virtuous not because it comes naturally as some are predisposed to a more virtuous life. But God admires those who strive and struggle to be morally upright, and it doesn't come easy to them. There's something great, there's something noble about that man or about that woman who, in spite of their predilection towards a certain weakness or addiction, they fight hard, they fight long, they lean on the grace of God, and they resist and maintain a godly pursuit of righteousness in their life. And for them, it doesn't come easy. There's some admiration and nobility in that man or that woman who says whatever it takes. If I have to go away and spend nine months or go through teen challenge or go to some other place and get locked away and go through intense discipleship, I'm willing to pay whatever the price needs to be paid because I want to be free. And you can be free because there's something beautiful inside of you. In spite of that broken area, in spite of the flaws, and in spite of the imperfections, God sees the beauty inside of you. And God can give all of us beauty for ashes, as it says in the book of Isaiah. I came across a quote many, many, many years ago, 20 plus years ago in my studies. And I memorize it. I I really don't know the source. So somebody came up to me last night and said, do you know the source of that? I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. But it really typifies what we're talking about. It says this, leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. From strength to strength, go on. Wrestle, fight, and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win that well-fought day. It meant so much to me because in life, you're going to have your battles. In life, you're going to have your struggles. Nothing comes easy. Those of you that have had to fight for success and fight for victory, there's a price that's paid. Ultimately, Christ paid the price for us. And so we know that it's ours legally. You have certain legal rights as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, but we have to make them ours vitally. Just like God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of 400 plus years of bondage, through the wilderness, which only should have taken a few days but ended up taking 40 years. They finally got into the promised land, but when they entered into the promised land, they had some battles that they had to fight. It was theirs legally, but the enemy wasn't just going to roll over and play dead and just hand it over to to them. And the blessings that God has for you and for me in life are not just going to be handed over to us easily. We're going to have to leave no unguarded place no weakness of the soul take every virtue every grace and fortify the whole from strength to strength go on wrestle fight and pray tread all the powers of darkness down and know that you will win that well-fought day because all of you are destined to win in christ and through christ hallelujah paul continues in verse 23 now of acts 13 and, and it is one of king david's descendants jesus oh now Paul never stopped preaching about Jesus. It's amazing how many times in Paul's writings and Paul's letters he mentions Jesus and he mentions the cross. Who is God's promised Savior of Israel? Before he came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. And as John was finishing his ministry, he asked, do you think that I am Messiah? No, I'm not. But he is coming soon and I'm not even worthy, this is John the Baptist now, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, he's talking to the Jews now, you sons of Abraham and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about instead they condemned him and in doing this they fulfilled the prophets words that are read every Sabbath the beauty of first things the beauty of faith and really finally the beauty of finding Christ have you found Christ he's not hiding he's not running from you he's running towards you the greatest moment in life Is that moment in your life and in my life when we find Christ, when we recognize, when we discover God's grace that has been calling out to you all your life. Something I I realized before I surrendered my life to Christ and was gloriously born again is that God was always there in my life. I can't explain it. But from the earliest ages as a child, I sensed his presence in my life even when i did something wrong i said something wrong i broke a commandment i felt guilty i don't think it was just entirely because of my catholic upbringing and thank god for the foundation that the catholic church laid in my life and though even though i didn't pay attention and even though it was all up here but never in here there was this realization that god is real and that god was there and that christ died for me and i'm so thankful that i i sense that god was in my life and Maybe you have had that same experience. Maybe you have that same experience now, and you've not yet become a Christian. He's always been there. You know why? Because he's always loved you. And his mercy and his grace has always been reaching out to you. And in my life, the the harder I fought against God, it seemed like the more real his presence was becoming in my life. And the faster I tried to run from God, it seems like you can't outrun the Holy Spirit. Amen. How many know you can't outrun the Holy Spirit? Some of you have been trying, but you're not going to be able to. But the people, Paul said that day in his first sermon, the beauty of first things, you didn't recognize him. Neither did Saul of Tarshish. Now the great apostle Paul preaching his first message all about Jesus. Imagine that God was in your very midst. God in human form. God in the flesh was in your very midst. And yet, most of the people didn't recognize him. They didn't see they didn't see. You know, even Jesus in his own life, not Mary, of course, but his half brothers, they didn't believe in him initially. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus was preaching one day and the, his family came to apprehend him because they thought he had lost his mind. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, uh, there was a, a special feast going on in Jerusalem and Jesus's half brothers mocked him and basically said, If you really say you are who you say you are, it's your time to go in Jerusalem and reveal yourself. He said, it's not my time. It might be your time, but it's not my time. But my time is coming. But later on, his brothers came to faith, James and Jude. and they, become, they became powerhouses for the gospel, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But even his own family members initially did not recognize who was in their very midst. How can God be in our midst? How could God be walking among us? How could God be speaking to us? And we don't see it. We don't recognize it. Never a man spoke as Jesus spoke, the Bible tells us. Never a man did the very things that Jesus did. Walking on water, multiplying the fish and the loaves, healing the blind, unstopping deaf ears, raising the dead, and then he himself conquering death and appearing to over 500 eyewitnesses. Wow. Wow and yet he was in their very midst and they didn't recognize him. I'm going to ask you a question, two questions. The first one's this. What causes you to cry? What brings you to a place of tears? You know, what causes someone to cry reveals a lot about that person, kind of who they are. Maybe a better question is what causes God to cry? You know, on three occasions Jesus wept. At the Lazarus' funeral, John 11:35, Jesus wept. In the Garden of Gethsemane, according to the writer of Hebrews 5, verse 7, he wept with great tears of weeping. But the other moment in the life of Jesus that he wept is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, and it says this. Now, as he, Jesus, drew near the city of Jerusalem, the city that God loves, the apple of his eye, a prophetic city, the greatest wars have been fought over that city, and the greatest war, the war of Armageddon, will be fought over that city. God loves the city of Jerusalem, and when Jesus Christ comes a second time without sin into salvation, he will rule and reign for a thousand years from that city, the city of Jerusalem. There's great prophetic significance about the city of Jerusalem, and that city doesn't belong to the Gentiles. That city doesn't belong to the Arabs. That city doesn't belong to the Palestinians. That city belongs to God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and America would be wise to not interfere with God's plan and God's love and God's protection of the city of Jerusalem. (laughs) Listen, say what you might say about our current president, but there's something that God is doing through this man that he is the first president to have the courage to say that we're going to move you know and we're going to locate our capital that the capital of Israel is Jerusalem you need to know that this is a prophetic moment and we need to be in prayer as things are unfolding in these last days and as Jesus drew near he saw the city and he wept over it saying if you had known even you especially in this your day the things that make for your peace but now They are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surrounding you, and close you in on every side. And level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Jesus predicted and prophesied this in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. As he gave signs of the end times. He's reiterating this prophecy once again. And all of this is happening because you did not know the time of your visitation. It breaks your heart. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and he came into this world. He came unto his own, his own people. His own people didn't recognize him. His own people rejected him. And to this day, hundreds of millions of people have still and are still rejecting him. And even to this day, the Jewish people, and we must pray for them, have still rejected Jesus. As Messiah. And so he wept. Now why did he weep? For two reasons. Because of lost privileges and lost opportunities. There was a privilege. They had. Such a privilege. To know. To celebrate and to receive. The Savior of the world. The Messiah. He came from the Jewish people. First of all to the Jewish people. And they rejected him. What caused God to weep. When we don't live up to our privileges and our benefits today in christ lost privileges we can't begin to describe how much of a privilege it is to know and serve christ if today you know and serve christ you are a privileged human being we are so privileged to have the Word of God, to be able to read the Word of God and study the Word of God. We are so privileged to be able to come and gather a, a, and assemble in a, in a service like this and worship together freely. We are so privileged that sometimes we begin to take those privileges and those advantages, advantages for granted. We should never take for granted the advantages and the privileges that we have. The privilege of knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and serving Jesus, being one of his sons and being one of his daughters. The privilege of the word of Christ dwelling in your hearts richly. The privilege of the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same spirit dwells inside of your mortal body. Not a different spirit, not a, but the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. What a privilege it is to be a Christian, to be a child of God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a privilege to be able to spend eternity in heaven and all because of Jesus, not because of you, not because of anything you've done or I've done, but all because of what Christ has done. And I thank God that you recognize this great privilege and that you've not missed your opportunity to seize it. 2,000 years ago, the children of Israel didn't do that. A lost privilege, a lost opportunity. God was there, knocking, and they ignored. And they turned away. And in 70 A.D., that city was destroyed by the Romans. That temple was destroyed by the Romans and has not yet been rebuilt. Not one stone was left upon the other. And everything in that city was scorched and burned, just as Jesus said. So he was moved in that moment and brought to tears because he knew what was going to come upon that city. I don't know, maybe God is weeping for America right now. That if we don't change course and turn back to God, maybe the end of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. could be our end, but for the grace of God. Lost privileges, lost opportunities, and then Paul ends the message. We're going to wrap it up in some lengthy scripture reading here, so listen with attentive ears and an open heart. Beginning in verse 28, they found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. And when they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they they are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. Verse 32, And now we are here to bring you this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said this, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen. This is Paul now. He's coming to the end of his sermon, and so am I. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. Be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak more of these thing, about these things again the next week. And many Jews, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged for yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I've made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. This does not mean that some are predestined for heaven and some are predestined for hell. All are predestined for heaven. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe would not perish. It's that you make the choice. You can choose yourself unfit and unworthy for the gift of eternal life. God forbid that you would do that. But you can And there were some that day that said we're not worthy of this glorious gift. But all chosen, many called few chosen, eternal life became believers so verse 49 so the Lord's message spread throughout that region then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city and incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town listen until your preaching causes some people to get so angry that they run you out of town, town you haven't really preached your greatest sermons yet so I'm waiting for the day to come when I'm able to preach my greatest sermon and be ran out of Lubbock amen Verse 51, so they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. That's what we'll be preaching on when we go to Acts 14 in our next weekend service. In verse 52, I want us to read it out loud together. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's read it again. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit are you filled with joy today are you filled with his Holy Spirit you can be you see when we understand the beauty of first things the beauty of faith and the beauty of finding and the beauty of following Christ our lives can be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit and we need we need more and more occasions because you know we leak (laughs) We we live in a leaky world we leak out that joy, we, we leak out that, that, the Holy Spirit and so there are times of refreshing and times of renewal when we need to be filled again with joy and filled again with the Holy Spirit. And we have to remember our first love as John writing to the churches in, F, in, in the book of Revelation talked about. It's so easy to lose our first love, to lose what it was like when we were first saved and we were on fire for Jesus. The world was brighter and the birds they, they would sing louder and everything was at a whole different level. And then decade after decade it seems as though we only want to detect the defects. We stop seeing that which is beautiful, and we only focus on that which is ugly in ourselves and others, and we lose our joy. And we lose the presence and acknowledging the presence of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord not be weeping over your lost privileges and over your lost opportunities, because you're recognizing your privileges and you're living up to those spiritual privileges and benefits of your life, and that you're not missing out on the God moments and the God opportunities for your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed, Father, we come to you today and we say, fill me with joy and fill me with the Holy Spirit. May my life be filled to the overflow with the joy of the Lord today thank you that you see the beauty even in that which is flawed and that Lord I'm not looking for perfection in myself or in others or in my marriage or my spouse or my church or my country but I will look for that which is beautiful because beauty is in me through Christ and beauty is in others. Lord I thank you for filling us with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, if heads bowed and eyes closed if you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to christ or you've never accepted christ as your lord and savior he's knocking on the door of your heart hear him open up the door of your heart and ask christ to come into your life you say how do i do that Well, the bible says in 1 john 1 9 if you'll confess your sins he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness that same bible in romans chapter 10 verse 9 says if you'll confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart god raised him from the dead you will be saved so I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I'm going to ask you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? Woo! Hallelujah!